If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, our passage is Exodus 21 through 21, which can be found on page 61 in the Pew Bible. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guilt, guiltless who takes his name in vain. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or, or your female servant, or your livestock or the, or the sojourn who is within your gates. For in, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father, father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Jesus, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, Today, it's almost been almost exactly a year since Jessica and I set out from Texas to come to Massachusetts. And a year in, I would say it's going well. Things seem to be going well. I look back at the year that we've had, and it's just been full of blessing. My personal mission to bring the word y'all to New England is well underway, and I appreciate Mark's taking up the cause last week, so thank you for that. I'm thankful for the chance to come before you this morning with only the gospel in my hands that we might worship our God in spirit and truth together. Recently on Twitter, I saw someone, they wrote, when the youth pastor preaches, he tries to include everything he knows to impress everyone. Fortunately, however, the sermon is still only 20 minutes long. This morning, however, we're studying the Ten Commandments, so I basically have to preach a 10-point sermon. So no promises on that 20-minute expectation. Last week, we looked at chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, when the people of God arrived at Mount Sinai after they had left uh, their bondage in Egypt. And Mark helpfully pointed out to us last week that this section, chapters 19 and 20, is a critical turning point in the book as a whole. And we notice that, we, that that's indicated to us because the speed of the narrative, the speed of storytelling in the book, book of Exodus, has come to a screeching halt. Up to this point in the book, things have been moving very quickly. Moses ages from a baby to an adult in Egypt to an old man returning to Egypt in the span of one chapter. 
the world's finest, most well-equipped military force is overwhelmed within the span of a few sentences. But now, beginning in chapter 19, as Mark helpfully pointed out, everything is slowing way, way down. In the 18 chapters leading up to this point, the people of God have moved swiftly through 11 different locations. But for the entire rest of the book, for the 22 remaining chapters of the book of Exodus, they will be encamped here at Mount Sinai. Significant things are going to take place in this location. Things that God is going to take his time with. This is not to say that the events leading up to this point in the story are unimportant, but the pacing of the narrative reveals something significant to us. We do the same thing. Without even thinking about it, we do the same thing. Things that are important to us, we tend to take more time with. If I were to go to get a tattoo, which I don't have, but I feel like if I ever want to be a hip youth pastor, I need to get one. At this point, I don't have one, but if I were to get one and I would go to the tattoo artist, I wouldn't say to that person, you know, just like a fish or something. Right? I would take my time and explain exactly what I wanted. I wouldn't leave that to chance. I would make sure that we were on the same page and that he understood exactly what I was, what I was wanting. I would want to see, you know, drafts of his work before it was like forever on my body, right? We take time with the things that are important to us, with the things that we want people to get right, right? And the pace of the narrative in Exodus says something to us about God and about what's important to him. He does not say, just give me a fish or whatever. He does not rush through this process. Instead, he takes his time, and he's very meticulous in the way that he establishes his covenant relationship with the people who are waiting to meet him at Mount Sinai. So in chapter 19, the people have arrived, and God has told them to get ready for his arrival. It's part one of sort of a two-part scene. And he tells them that for three days, they need to prepare themselves for his coming. And so on the third day, there was thunder and there was lightning, the increasingly loud blasting of a trumpet that shakes the entire mountain that they're looking at. And and the whole mountain is wrapped in smoke because the presence of God has consumed it with fire. It is quite an entrance that we looked at last week in chapter 19. And the people, as they're watching this unfold, they get justifiably nervous. And it reminds me of an iconic scene from the movie Jurassic Park, one of my favorite movies. These main characters are stranded in a a vehicle that's out in the rainstorm in the middle of the night. The dinosaurs have gotten loose. And before anything happens, they sense the coming of their greatest fear. They feel every step that the T-Rex takes before he arrives. And with each step that he comes closer, the tension of the moment, you know, gets more palpable. The fear of the characters grows and the fear of the audience grows before the Tyrannosaurus Rex even makes an appearance on screen. That's what's taking place here in chapter 19. They've gotten ready. The thunder and the lightning and the trumpet and the earthquake and the smoke have all unfolded before them. And as we open chapter 20, the fear that they feel is palpable and God begins to speak. What they fear most has come. And God speaks directly to them. Prior to this point, in the book of Exodus, God has spoken to his people through Moses. After this point, God will speak to his people through Moses. But here, for this moment, they are in God's presence. 
They are in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God because he has brought them to himself. And so he addresses them, and his first words to them are, I am the Lord your God. And those words point the people and point us backward in the story. Throughout Exodus, God has linked his promise of deliverance with his name, which you see in your Bibles when you see the capital letters, Lord, that's shorthand for God's covenant name, which he revealed to his people in Exodus 3, along with the promise that he would deliver them from slavery. He has linked his name with his promise to free these people. In commissioning Moses to confront Pharaoh, he reveals his name in his assurance to keep that promise and exercise justice on those that have enslaved them. He seals that promise with his name. We read that several weeks ago in chapter 6. He said, I am the Lord, using his name. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name I did not make myself known to them. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In chapter 20, when God meets his people face to face, he reminds them that he is the one who keeps his promises, who redeems, and who has already delivered them from their bondage. The story of the deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery is bracketed on either end with this confirmation of God's resolve in which he utters his name, in which he says, I am the Lord your God. It is the seal of his promise, the seal of the promise that he would be with Moses in his mission, the mission that he commissioned him to carry out in chapter 3, the confirmation of his resolve to complete the work that he had begun in chapter 6, and the declaration of his faithfulness to these people in chapter 20. In redeeming his people, he has made himself known to them. And the Ten Commandments that we're looking at this morning are part of that process. Together, the Ten, the Ten Commandments form what is one of the most familiar parts of the entire Bible. Uh, many of us uh, have heard the Ten Commandments you know, on and off in different places, in different scenarios for most of our lives. They are very familiar to us. However, even though that's true, even though it's very familiar to us, as I was doing some research this week, I found out that only about 15% of people in America, regardless of whether or not they attend church regularly, about 15% of people in America can name five of the Ten Commandments. 50%. We start with confidence, right? When someone asks or when we think about it, we say, well, don't murder. I know that's one of them. That one's easy. Uh, and don't steal. We can typically remember that one. Don't lie. All right, we're really moving along now, but oh, okay, all right, what else is there? Don't envy, is that one? Don't, don't cheat to win a playoff game in the NFL. That should surely be one of them, right? That should be, we, I feel like we know in our heart of hearts that that should be one of them, right? 
According to recent research, half of the people in this room, half of regular church attenders, mistake the golden rule for one of the Ten Commandments. It's an important rule to live by. Treat others as you would have them treat you. But it's not one of the Ten Commandments. Half of us mistake it for one. Even though we may not have the Ten Commandments memorized, evidently we don't, most of us, we know that they're important. We sense that they're important. The Ten Commandments are unique in Scripture because of the way that they are presented to the people. God himself is speaking to them directly, while the rest of the law came through Moses as a prophet. They are the only part of the whole Bible which God himself inscribed with his own finger, something that we will study when we get to chapter 31. They are the only part of the Bible which God himself with his own hand wrote on tablets of stone. They are incredibly personal. This is not obvious in English, but up to this point in this section of Exodus, God has been addressing his people using second person plural pronouns to address them. Okay, listen, he's been saying y'all to them. He's been addressing them as a body of people, but now he's using second person singular pronouns. He's saying you, each one of you, every single one of you, this is how I'm calling you to live. This is how I'm calling you to engage in relationship with me. Every single one of you, this is how I'm calling you to act toward one another and how you will represent me, every one of you to the nations. The Ten Commandments break roughly into two main sections. That's how we'll examine them this morning. Commandments 1 through 4 describe and define a right regard for God himself. And so the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. This flows immediately out of God's proclamation of his covenant relationship with these people. They are the people that he has chosen to be his own. And so he commands and expects absolute faithfulness from them. There is no room for idolatry or wandering. He commands that the people are faithful to him. Likewise, he commands that they do not make images of him or representations of who he is. Any tangible, visible representation of God will fail to capture his transcendence, his grace, his creative power, or his uniqueness. He defies our efforts. And he knows how easily the people of Israel and all people exchange the real thing for the image. It won't take long in the book of Exodus, it won't take long before the people of Israel stumble over this one. Before long, they will have made for themselves a statue of God, and they will begin to worship the statue itself rather than God himself. We look at that commandment with our 21st century glasses on, and we think, well, that doesn't seem very hard. That one seems easier to, to, to keep. We don't typically keep statues of God in our house that we worship. That's not something that most of us do. But the weakness is still there. The weakness that leads us in that direction is still in all of us. We are just as good at letting, at, at letting the means to the goal become the goal itself. Things that we design to help us worship, to help us know God more, or to grow in our faith can easily become the idols that we look to for our fulfillment, or for our confidence, for our joy. 
They may not be statues, but we make idols all the same. And God is jealous for the worship of his people, so that will not stand. He is jealous, he says in verse 5, for the worship of his people. It's a word that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe a husband's desire for the affection of his wife. Jessica would rightly be upset with me if I were to give my affection to someone else, and I would certainly rightly be upset with her if she were to do the same thing. God describes himself as a jealous God, someone who desires our affection, that we do not give it to anyone else. And he describes himself in this way, using his covenant name again. These people, they may not know everything about God yet, but they do know him personally. They know his name. And this commandment is designed to protect their personal knowledge of him, to keep them from designing instruments which will ultimately create distance between themselves and God. An image of God will ultimately only ever be a shadow of who he really is. And now, standing before him, they can know how true that is. They are beholding the glory of God, and surely they understand, at least in this moment, how impossible it will be to sum that up in an image that they can make with their hands. It's like the difference between, like, a, a, you know, an autograph of Elvis and an autograph of an Elvis impersonator, right? There's a big difference. There are Elvis impersonators out there everywhere who would love to give you their autograph. I'm sure they would be really excited about that because they probably don't get asked as often as the real thing. And we are rightly, you know, like less excited about an Elvis impersonator's autograph. It doesn't capture the real thing. The images that we make, even if they are intended well, ultimately fail spectacularly to represent God honestly and faithfully. And the dire warning associated with this commandment demonstrates God's concern that his people have a relationship with him and not with something that is imitating him. The third and fourth commandments further shape the way that God's people act toward him, not only in the way that they talk, but in the way that they arrange their daily lives. Using the Lord's name in vain, I think is, has always been a little bit of a nebulous concept to me. What does it mean to use the Lord's name in vain? The word vain in this, in this use here conveys a sense of emptiness or falseness and deception. It is a sin to use God's name in a way that does not convey his righteousness, his grace, and his holiness. It's similar to God's command regarding images. Do not invoke the name of the Lord if you are not representing him truly and faithfully. Do not use his name, his covenant name, if you are not representing him faithfully. This is also why God gives the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. It's the way that we design our daily lives, our weeks, in such a way that we can testify to who God is. For six days God created, and on the seventh day he rested. And we remember, as we observe the Sabbath, that he is the maker and keeper of all things, and that when he looked upon his creation, it was not just good, it was very good. It was unstained and uncorrupted by sin and rebellion. And every Sabbath observation 
reminds us of the good work that God did in creation and gives us hope and anticipation of the good work that he will do in new creation. When we look back at the first Sabbath, we look through it forward to the final Sabbath and the restoration of all things. In the first four commandments, God directs that the people approach a relationship with him in his way, not in their way. In order that, by following his way, we see God as he truly is and trust in what he will do. They ensure that we represent him with accuracy and faithfulness. In the remaining six commandments, God gives instructions for, the pe- for uh, people's relationships with one another. Each is to honor his parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. They define how the society of God's people should function. And collectively, they summarize God's command that we love and respect our neighbor. These commandments protect everyone else from me. They protect everyone else. They protect my neighbors from my sinful heart. Jesus summarized the whole of the law in the commandments that people are to love God with everything that they have and to love others as themselves. And this is what the Ten Commandments produce, love for God and love for our neighbor. When he was writing about the the Ten Commandments, uh, John Calvin noted specifically regarding the Sixth Commandment that the command to not murder is more than just instruction to avoid striking a fatal blow. Instead, he writes, we are to aid our neighbor's life by all that is in our power. God forbids us to injure our brother for he would have us hold his life dear and valuable to us, so that when God forbids us, he also at the same time demands all avenues of love that can contribute to the life of our neighbor. It's not just restrictions on what we're allowed to do, but instruction about how we protect our neighbor from our corrupt hearts. These aren't laws in a traditional sense in the Bible because there are no punishments listed for breaking the Ten Commandments. Instead, they define God's expectations for the character of God's people as his people. Four times in this short passage, God calls himself the Lord your God, using his name, his covenant name. And that relationship is at the heart of the Ten Commandments. In each instruction he gives, God is saying something about himself because the laws reveal something about the lawmaker. When I was a kid, my mom wouldn't let me eat ice cream for dinner. Uh, Evidently, she thought that would be bad for me. And I think the jury is still out on that, but it was her rule. I wasn't allowed to eat ice cream for dinner. The rule that she made revealed something about her care for me. She wanted me to be healthy, and, you know, I, I guess eating ice cream for dinner is not, right? The rules that she made for my brothers and I revealed something about her care for us, her love for us, right? The laws that we make as a society reveal something about what we believe as a society. In 1982, our Congress passed the Clean Water Act, right, which, which aims to reduce pollutants in our lakes and rivers. And now, thanks to Uncle Sam, I can't go dump drums of toxic waste in creeks and lakes, right, without a permit, which is literally, <laughs> literally what it says. 
That's a law that says something about who we are and what we value, what we think is important. As a society, we've decided that we care about the streams and creeks and rivers and lakes. We want our grandchildren to be able to go kayaking without fear that they're going to be bitten by a radioactive three-eyed fish. Every one of God's commandments for his people demonstrates something about his character and what's important to him. He alone is God. He commands that the people who carry his name, who bear his name, are faithful toward himself and one another. In light of what we have observed about the the Ten Commandments, I think that there are four critical observations we need to make from this part of the Exodus narrative as a whole. First, the commandments are designed as the response of God's people to his deliverance. We often think of the Ten Commandments as sort of separate from the story that is unfolding because it is such a familiar part of the Bible to us, even for people who perhaps have never read the Bible before. It, is, it sounds familiar to us, and we often lift it right out of the context that it's a part of, the context that helps us to understand it. The Ten, the ten Commandments came to the Israelites with a backstory. And that backstory is important. The first words that God speaks to his people are, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Israelites have already demonstrated in the passages that we have already studied in Exodus, their lack of short-term memory. It didn't take them long after being miraculously uh, rescued out of their slavery in Egypt before they begin grumbling against God doubting his love for them, and wondering aloud whether or not he has simply brought them into the desert to die. So when God speaks to his people, he reminds them of what he has already done. I brought you out of enslavement. Now, in light of that reality, this is how you should live. God introduces these commandments with the reminder that he is the God who saves. And that reality motivates the obedience of his people. God does not give the law. He does not command or give instruction in order that people can save themselves. Even though people have always, always tried to make it work that way, we are really, really good at putting the imperative commands of Scripture before the indicative realities of grace. Our habit is to take the good news of the gospel and, and require something, right? Require just a little bit of our own effort to the equation in order to make it sufficient. The entire book of Galatians was written to address that sort of confusion among a people who were sure that Jesus was almost enough. That all they had to do was add something, add a little bit of their own obedience to put it over the top. It would have been easy for people hearing God proclaim these commandments for them to see the Ten Commandments as a ladder with ten rungs on it. And that as long as they didn't miss any steps on the ladder, they could climb their way to the top. It would have been easy for them to see the Ten Commandments as a checklist to work through in order to get to the point that God would be on their side. Except for the fact that God has already demonstrated his favor for them. He has already proven his affection for them. By grace, he has made promises, and in love, he has kept them. The Ten Commandments are not 
the way for the Israelites to save themselves. Instead, they established the framework of their joyful response to the God who has saved them already. So when God announces the Ten Commandments, he does so with a reminder about what he's already done for them. I brought you out of slavery. Now, here is how you should respond to me. Secondly, Israel immediately recognized upon meeting the Lord their need for a mediator. After arriving at the foot of the mountain and making camp there, God sends word through Moses that the people need to begin getting ready because in three days he's coming to meet with them. And after three, do- three days of anticipation, the meeting is more than they can handle. They hear the voice of God in the thunder. and They are too terrified to reply. It's not an uncommon response to meeting God in Scripture. When Isaiah met God, it defies his comprehension. God is bigger, more magnificent, and more glorious than what he was prepared for. And rather than proclaiming that this is the coolest thing he's ever seen in his life, he falls to pieces in terror. In the presence of the majesty and perfection of God, he becomes aware of all that he lacks. He becomes keenly, acutely aware of his manifold imperfections. No matter how confident he had been before that meeting, God put things in true perspective. Back when I was in college, I used to play soccer occasionally. Uh, my friends and I would go and play soccer in the park, you know, a couple times a week. And um, I was pretty good. Like, it wasn't bad. I could hold my own when we got together. I was pretty fast, and I could, I could, you know, play pretty well with the group of guys that I played with. But in 2007, I went to Venezuela for two weeks, and um, my confidence was shattered by a bunch of six-year-olds who could play circles around me and who seemed to really enjoy, like, exploiting all of the weaknesses that they found in my ability. They, they enjoyed laying my, my incompetence bare, right, on the soccer, on the soccer field. It was a pretty rapid realization of an accurate perspective. Meeting God is a terrifying experience for the Israelites. Even though God is portrayed in movies as uh, basically Santa in a bathrobe, what, what is described to us here in Exodus 19 and 20 is something that absolutely knocks them back on their heels. They are too afraid to respond to him. They have already seen his his power on display. They have seen his judgment being poured out on the king of Egypt. They have seen God do incredible, terrifying things. But it's not until now that they begin to see things in perspective when they meet with God face to face. Having heard the command of God, they begin to realize that they do not measure up to his standard. And so, like Isaiah, they wilt before him. And rather than a resounding, yes, sir, to the commands that he's giving him to them, they come to Moses. And in verse 19, they say, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us or we're going to die. They knew upon meeting God that it would not turn out well for them to dwell in his presence. They needed someone to stand in the gap, to act as a mediator between themselves and God because the return to God's presence will not end well for them. Third, God has given them the Ten Commandments so that they will not sin. After their fearful request for a mediator, Moses replies to them, Do not fear, 
For God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, in order that you may not sin. It's a strange way of saying it. Don't fear, right? Don't be afraid, but fear. The people, just like Isaiah, are afraid for their lives. They think that they are about to die because what is unfolding before them is that intimidating. It is not an irrational fear. Light drives out darkness and God does not abide evil. It is very rational that they are afraid in the presence of God. Isaiah proclaimed when he met God, Woe is me, I am lost because I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was afraid because God does not dwell with ungodliness. And so Moses replies to the people in the face of their fear, do not fear. God is not going to annihilate you today. Instead, he has come to test you, to give you the chance to hear his voice and obey to stand in reverent fear of the one who calls you to obedience and to respond according to the grace that he has shown you. In these covenant stipulations, God begins outlining for his people the line between good and evil, righteousness and sin. Righteousness is not in the eye of the beholder, nor is sin. God defines what is good, not the people. They don't argue their case for why they ought to be able to commit adultery. God speaks and they listen because he is giving a glimpse of his holiness and the pathway which they are to walk in its light. When I think about the Ten Commandments, I think we often jump to our own context. We think about court cases that we've heard about in the news, about whether or not the Ten Commandments can be displayed in courtrooms and classrooms. We think of Charlton Heston, even if Like me, you've never even seen the movie. We hear people make the argument that our entire civilization was built on this set of moral and ethical boundaries. But if we surgically remove the Ten Commandments from the story that they were a part of, we ignore the rich gospel truths that they they bring to us. They are not rules that we follow in order that God will like us. Rather, They begin to illuminate the ways in which we might rightly respond to the God who has delivered, who has already delivered you and I from captivity. He is the Lord, our God, who brought us out of the house of slavery. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters, as representatives of his mercy to the nations. And our response is worship and obedience his call. The Ten Commandments are not rungs on a ladder that we climb in order to get to God. They are the beginning of our rejoicing that he has come down to us. It is his grace that he illuminates the path that he calls us to walk. A path that is the response, our response, to the fact that the gospel is already true. The Israelites were right to ask for a mediator. It was not an irrational fear that drove them to ask for a mediator. God is holy, and he commands holiness. He does not abide evil or ungodliness. They were right to ask for a mediator. They knew that they could not approach God, but they asked too little. Exodus 19 and 20 are a critical 
turning point in the story of God's people. So when the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers about how they ought to live in response to the good news that the Son of God came, lived, died, and was raised on their behalf, he references this crucial part of their people's history. And in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, the writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The promise of Israel's deliverance from slavery, of God's arrival on Mount Sinai, and the mortal fear of the people in his presence comes to life in Jesus Christ. We do not stand before God in mortal fear because in Christ we have been made new. And we proclaim that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this morning we approach the Holy of Holies as the Israelites did, but not in mortal fear. We come with rejoicing and a desire that our lives would reflect the glory of the God who saves. Would you pray with me? God, we ask this morning that you would dwell with us, that the Holy of Holies would be here among us, that your presence would be here with us. God, our, our fear of you is real, but it is not a mortal fear. We know that we are safe because we have been made new, because the gospel is true. And so this morning we ask that you would equip us, enable us to be people who reflect your character, who are ambassadors of the gospel in a watching world, and who rejoice in you more and more each day. God, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your son in whose name we come before you with our praise and this prayer. Amen.